Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. Today's episode is the fourth and final episode in a series on the art of law in the international community, hosted by Professor Mary Ellen O'Connell and based on her book by the same name. In this episode, Mary Ellen, the Robert and Marion Short Professor of Law and Research Professor of International Dispute Resolution, talks with Martha C. Nussbaum, the Ernst Freund Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago. They discuss how the arts impact international law and efforts to reduce violence around the world. Martha Nussbaum, welcome to the Croc podcast series called CrocCasts. This is the fourth episode on the art of law in the international community, and I can't think of a more propitious moment for so many reasons, but I'm just going to highlight one right now at the outset of our conversation. You have just finished an extraordinary chapter for a book very close to my own heart. I'm so looking forward to it. The book is Canons and Codes, War in Law and Literature, with a number of editors, including you. And then your chapter is Crucified by the War Machine, Britain's War Requiem, Bodies and European Reconciliation. Your chapter, like my book, The Art of Law, is about art, law, and war. And we are both interested in these two projects in bringing home to readers the reality of war and the fact there are alternatives. In your chapter, you're looking at the European project that followed from the Second World War as an extraordinary alternative to the conflagration that preceded it. And I'm, of course, looking at a number of things, including general universal dispute resolution. So we have a lot in common in these two projects, but I think it would be fascinating for readers to hear at the outset about something that we have done quite differently, and I think they'd like to hear from you. And that's your emphasis in the chapter on war and bodies. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Mary Ellen, for inviting me to this podcast. It's a wonderful opportunity, and I've really loved getting familiar with your wonderful book and thinking about what might be different between us. So let me, before I answer your question, say that what's interesting to me is that we're doing somewhat different things, but they're definitely complementary. You're treating theater as a peaceful model of dispute resolution. So your approach is procedural in linking law with literature, whereas I'm focused more on content. But of course, one can also focus on the procedural and say that both music and literature are models of how one may cooperate peacefully. And I think that's a big something I might have emphasized more in my chapter if I had read your book first. But anyhow, what what I'm doing is Wilfred Owen supplied the texts that, along with the Requiem Mass, Benjamin Britten uses in his War Requiem, which was premiered in 1962, so it's way after the Second World War, but it's to celebrate the rededication of Coventry Cathedral from the bombed-out state it was in after the war. So it's a project that is supposed to celebrate regeneration 
and in some sense reconciliation. He deliberately cast an Englishman, a German, and a Russian as the three lead singers, and so it's all about national reconciliation. But in any case, the project that he went to Wilfred Owen for, and then I think improved on in his music, is the, the idea that the makers of war are usually not very vividly aware of the human body. They're sitting off in an office someplace, and they're not experiencing what the common soldier experiences, the penetration of the body by, of course, not just weapons, but by hunger and disease and all the things that happens to people. Of course, Owen was writing in World War One, where trench warfare was just a terrible condition that Owen and many other people were in for many years. So the idea is that if somehow we can bring home to people what war does to the body, and yet why the body is precious, why it is in a way divine. And I think Britain, who was deeply religious in his antinomian way and was an Anglican, wanted to emphasize the part of the Mass where the body of Christ is actually present. And he, his idea is that there is a kind of earthly presence of the divinity of the body in the soldiers who are at risk in the war. And so I focus particularly on the Agnes Dei movement, which does depict a crucifixion, but it's actually not the crucifixion, but it's a crucifixion of a common soldier. And so it brings home to the listener the idea that these bullets that are whizzing by and all the, the sounds of the music imitate the sounds of war this is a divine body in which the presence of Christ exists. And what are we doing to it when we get bullets going through it and swords going through it? All for what? So that's basically the project of both Wilfred Owen and Britain. And, uh, of course, Wilfred Owen was a pacifist only about World War One, which he thought quite plausibly was totally pointless. Britain, it's, I'm troubled, and I say this in the paper, that yes. he was also a pacifist about World War II, and he went to great lengths to avoid not just military service, which he wouldn't have had anyway because he had a heart condition, but supportive civil service. I think that was immoral, and I, I really disapprove. I think World War II was a just war, if any there was, but in any case, I think in the end, I, having wrestled with this, I concluded that that doesn't really mar the war requiem, which is so much later, where the project is not to comment on the war so long ago, but to try to bring people together around a project of regeneration in the hope that they can recognize in time, before another war breaks out, the beauty of human bodies and the, the divinity of a human being, really, and prevent the conflagration from flaring up again. Your chapter and what you've just described so well to our listeners reminds me of a quote I came across just recently attributed to Picasso, that art is a lie that helps us see the truth. Yes, yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, you know, the question is, how do you make people who are going about their daily business realize the beauty and the specialness of a human being in such a way that they want to 
take time out before they think of destroying human beings again. And it, it takes an extraordinary artistic achievement. And I think not just the achievement of writing the music, but also the performance of it. Britain cast his longtime partner, Peter Pears, in the role of the tenor who sings The Crucified Soldier. And he loved all through his life. He loved Pierce, but he also loved Pierce's beautiful voice. And for him, the voice and the man were, were really inseparable. And so it's that, that beautiful voice that he loved made real to him, and he hopes to the audience, that there's a divine beauty in a human being that must not be taken lightly and destroyed. And I think... Britain and the War Requiem and other works of art and imagination in the time period you describe and in the years before did have an impact on regeneration and reaffirmation of the dignity of human life that helped succeed in creating a freer space or a more peaceful Europe. But it did not, of course, prevent in particular the British, from going to war in other places, fighting to keep the empire. 1962, the year of the war requiem, begins the Cold War, and the United States really re-entering into a more militaristic stand from this edifice of law and dispute resolution that it had tried to construct, maybe in the spirit or, or in a spirit that Britain would, would support, after the war, where alternatives to war courts, in particular the International Court of Justice, to settle disputes that had previously done this terrible thing to the body, to nature, and that at the same time that Britain is bringing this new memory and having perhaps some positive impact, I can't help but think that the very fact that people were losing this belief in the divinity of human life, in that the connection to the divine was being lost at this very time with the rise of an anti-natural law, anti-religious, pro-secular world in the West in particular. It seems to me that this is a time when we're actually moving away from renunciation of war and commitment to international law and alternatives to war. Well, oh, I, you know, the ending of the war requiem is not a happy ending, right. and I emphasize that in the the last movement is this Owen poem, "Strange Meeting," that depicts two dead soldiers meeting after death, and they say, "What was it that we fought for? Let us sleep now." But it's not just the poem, but then the music, which expresses grave doubt. It's a very ambiguous music. There's a kind of use of certain harmonies that have gone all the way through the work to make it seem like a big question mark at the end of the work. Is, are we going to recognize this or not? And I, I think for Britain, that's the right way to end. And you are quite right that that's what he should have said, that we don't know. We have to do it ourselves. And each time the work is played, we hear the challenge and the question mark and then we have to take up the challenge ourselves. Now, I think there is one respect in which he had reason to be optimistic, and that's the one that was deeply personal to him all 
through his life. He had been tormented about coming out as a gay man. Britain was one that did not allow a gay man to live openly. And in the early 1950s, between the war and this work, there was a particular kind of gay baiting time where people like Alan Turing were hounded to their death because they were gay. And, you know, Britain had, he was famous enough that he was a little bit immune from that, although Turing (laughs) was famous too, and he was not immune. But anyway, by 1962, the Wolfenden Commission had been created to recommend the decriminalization of same-sex acts. Shortly thereafter, in 67, they were decriminalized. And ex post, all the people who had been sentenced to various punishments for same-sex acts were pardoned by the Queen, so that their convictions were annulled. And, and, you know, by the time that Britain died in 1976, Queen Elizabeth herself wrote a letter to Peter Pears as though to a grieving spouse. So the Queen, I think, was always a little bit ahead of her time, frankly. She was loved opera, loved music, and she knew a lot of gay artists. But in any case, uh, that was and, quite And amazing. maybe she was able to do the thing that you credit Britain was seeking to do in the piece. Yeah. She was able to see the divinity in all human beings and the fact that they had been created as they were is a beautiful thing. Yes, and the I fact that he is. could engage in this great love was a testament of his connection to the divine. He created a music festival in Alderborough, where yes. he lived, to, to play works that could bring people together. But he also, he and Piers dedicated their hundreds of love letters. And it, it's interesting because they lived together most of the time. And so it's only the times when they were apart that they wrote letters. But there are still about 300 letters that are gathered in this museum in Alderborough, but now in a book that was published a couple of years ago called My Beloved Man, which is from one letter from Britain to Pierce, which is, I think, you know, a testimony to that sacredness. And, and Britain repeatedly talks about how the voice, the spirit, the whole of the person is beautiful. And, of course, that's something he wanted everyone to understand. And I think by that time, by the time he died, Britain had the country had made a lot of progress in this respect. They were way ahead of the U.S., certainly in the decriminalization and the recognition. Well, now we've got two ideas that international laws certainly tried to triumph to promote, and that's both prohibition on war and promotion of human rights. I wrote The Art of Law in the International Community in part because I think we have lost the grounding for those two great ideas. I would add a third that we've understood more recently, the importance of protecting the natural world and to create a fair system of economy, the four big projects of international law. But the art of law is to try to find, in place of those once strongly held beliefs in the divine and the divine working in the world that was explained by theologians, to people to include respect for law. And without that element, we seem to be constantly in this mode of law having its foundations washed away. But the one 
area where we still, and, and the way you write about the War Requiem, this comes through your writing as, as artistic in itself, as well as a description of a work that I think does this also, the arts bring us to the same idea of transcendence, the same opening to the divine in our world, to what we should cherish, peace, respect for human rights, the things that law can do for us, the peaceful settlement of disputes instead of war. So that's an idea I've had in the book. Yeah. I just wonder, you have been the pioneer. You have done more for explaining to people why the arts, why knowledge of the arts is so important for people who strive to be committed to the law. Well, I think the law can seem like an empty show unless we keep putting the body back into it, if you see what I mean. Yes. And that's what I think the arts do. They make us aware, whether it's literature or music or painting, that these are real beings. And I want to say beings, not just human beings, because I think, as you said, the recognition of animal life and the natural world is a very important thing ahead of us that we haven't done enough with. Absolutely. But, you know, the arts do bring us there. And in some ways, the arts can depict and bring us to the beauty of the natural world much more powerfully. I didn't do that in this particular paper, but but one could certainly do that much more powerfully than just a legal text by itself could do. Now, then the question is, how how do you get law students and law practitioners to take that seriously. Yes, Martha, that is exactly the question I was going to ask you next. I would love to hear your comments. Well, we have a new organization, and of course, the trouble with law school is they only stay for three years, so there's always a lack of continuity, but it started two years ago, Law Students for the Creative Arts, where they've done a whole series of programs to bring the arts into the law school, and just one that that took place last year was we have on our faculty the composer Augusta Reed Thomas, mm-hmm. and she had recently wor- written a string quartet called Chi about the vital life force. And so they brought her over there with a professional string quartet to play the work, and then I was supposed to talk about it while well, we had to do a lot of preparation for that. But it really was the same theme, that the vital life force is embodied in the vibrations of the string quartet and so forth. And then why would this matter to law? Because so often people forget. They just think, oh, it's an intellectual game, and they want to do the game well and get ahead, but they forget that this is, it's real. It's about real. Yes. And that, that, of course, was a point in my final chapter on theater and dispute resolution, how did we become so dominated by ideas of games, war games, other kinds of games? That has become the metaphor of law, and we've had no problem with our students and colleagues using that vocabulary with, I think, very negative results for these four big areas that international law seeks to support. How can we move people from those metaphors that have so distorted our approach and our thinking to how we're going to organize our lives together in community toward what I think will be extremely healing, far more creative and productive of the kind of world we want to to have where people and the natural world flourish through the arts? How do we make that shift? I think Martha Nussbaum who's had such an extraordinary impact, 
really is somebody, and that's why I've so looked forward to this conversation, help us make that transition? Well, you know, I don't think there's some magic potion you can get people to swallow and they're going to be changed for all eternity. I think it's, I mean, just as I said about the Britain work, it's got to be performed each time and each audience has to come to it and have that realization and then try to make it real in their own individual lives. It's the same with legal education, you know, you've got to keep doing it and you do it once and you do it again. We now have six law and literature books. The sixth one is the one you you mentioned, Canons and Codes. I guess as soon as this pandemic lets us loose, we will do the seventh one, which was going to be about marriage. But in any case, we have to just keep creating it. There are always courses that we, we, we have this program in our law school, which gives opportunities for this, called the Greenberg Seminars, where people teach small groups of law students in their homes informally. And I've always done a law and literature topic, first with Richard Posner and now with a different colleague. And this year we're going to do Irish literature and think Mm. about Ireland's relationship to oppression and freedom and so on, and read authors like Joyce, O'Casey, Beckett. So anyway, you know, just each thing is its own thing, and each group of students is its own group. But I just hope that by keeping on doing it, you know, then it trickles out and people are changed by it. And then sometime, maybe 20 years later, they do something or see something in the law that recognizes the, the fruits of that. I have noticed, I think, an increasing appetite by my students for this alternative orientation to a new explanation about why it all matters away from this game-playing, pure intellectual, sparring, win-loss, zero-sum, which is how, certainly in the United States, we have constructed our main framework and approach to the law. It's all battle time and, and game plan and that sort of thing, as opposed to productive performances to work through disputes toward an end where we have instituted the processes and the vision of divinity that knits us together and makes us remain committed to the, this kind of a community-binding idea of law. I have a seminar also on the law of art and cultural heritage, and the interest in that is just growing. Probably I'm getting better at teaching it, but it's, I think, indicative And what you described is so reassuring to just keep at it and persist. I have more and more students who want to then become teachers and teach those same ideas or bring some of those ideas into their practice. That's wonderful. I mean, when I first left my happy home in the philosophy department to get partly hooked up with the law school, the reason I wanted to do it was was that, namely that you Mm. can make your words and your teaching matter by reaching people one by one, I mean, I didn't know exactly how it would happen, but some will be judges, some will be right. politicians. And, you know, I think in the end, you just do it long enough. And I, I'm sure your international law students are hungry for that kind of meaning and richness and substance, probably more hungry if they choose international law, because that tends to select students who are passionate about human rights and other issues. So, you know, I'm sure you're giving them something very precious that they're already seeking but not understanding 
how to formulate it yet for themselves. And Martha, what about this moment? This moment in the middle of a worldwide health pandemic. Will this be the kind of moment out of which ideas like ours may have greater space? Is it a time we need to step up to respond to what might be even a greater opening to truly alternative intellectual constructs for such basic ideas as law? Well, of course, the trouble about fear is that it can broaden your perspectives, but very often it also narrows it. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, we see both Ooh. things happening. We yeah, there's danger then. Thinking that... about the world, but then, you know, it's like what Adam Smith said. He said, if there's an earthquake in China, you'll care very much about the people in China. But then if you hurt your finger, you'll care much more about your fingers. Yes. And and so I think you see the oscillation between those two poles, the pole of extreme selfishness and extreme care. And what we need is precisely law to make sure that our good instincts are set down firmly. You know, it's not, we don't have to depend on the whim of the moment, but we put it into law, which means it has a certain weight and permanence so that we we become better than ourselves, if you see what I mean. I do. That actually resonates with the first chapter of the book and Iris Murdoch's teaching that the real work of philosophers is to constantly help us unself, move away from the selfish toward the selfless. But I wonder if works of art like Britain's Requiem Mass don't do an even better job. Of course, Iris Murdoch was a novelist, an Irish novelist. Maybe her, some of her work will make it into your Greenberg seminar next year. But I wonder if she wouldn't agree in a sense that her works of art did more toward helping people see the other, see the divinity in the other, and understand that we don't punish people for who they are or send them to put their bodies in this violence, forcing others to be violent toward each other for political stratagems of the most selfish kind. Yeah. Now, of course, she was also very guarded about the arts because she knew that arts could be the vehicles for selfish fantasy, too. And so she Mm. had a very ambivalent attitude toward art and toward her own work as an artist. I mean, the unselfing she practiced as an incipient Buddhist was really a little bit about trying to get rid of her own ego. Mm. And, And that played a big role in making her quite critical of her own artistic production. So so I think her own attitudes about art were maybe, she was very influenced by Tolstoy, and I think right. maybe too much influenced by Tolstoy in his late work, who, you know, cast dispersions on art and thought that what we really need is just simple words that draw a whole community together. So that's a complicated topic, but I, I'm not like Tolstoy. I think we need the complexity and the sophistication of the arts to make us realize, to really get through to us, get through the obtuseness where a lot of us live our daily lives, to really see the the beauty and the divinity in each person. And, and I do believe that both music and literature can do that. And influence the law through it. Yeah. 
And that's that's good. I mean, I'm not being dismissive of no, law at all. Of course not. No, I mean, your whole life's work just really says how much you care about the well, law right. and how. I mean, that's why I'm teaching in a law school. And right. uh, and by the way, that's why our law school in 1902 was the very first to include stuff like this. It was because Ernst Freund, whose name is on my chair, I'm proud to hold. He thought a law school should bring all these things into legal education so that people could be social critics, basically. So they needed philosophy, they needed history, but they also needed literature and the arts. And on that extraordinarily perfect note, I'm going to say goodbye, Martha. We'll end this podcast here, but I hope you and I have just begun our own conversations on these topics. Oh, I hope so, too. I loved your book, and I'm going to read now the whole of it, not just that last chapter. And, And I really thank you for including me in the podcast. It was a joy. You've been listening to The CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of The CrocCast on Apple, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from The Croc Institute, follow us online at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.